0: From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm your host, Amanda Icone. So accounting is easy, right? You just tally up profits and losses for the quarter, slap on some assets and liabilities, and call it a day. Well, of course, it's not that simple. Coming up with the value of a company requires looking into the future and coming up with an estimate of how much assets and liabilities will be worth months, even years from now and what revenue might be coming in. All that in turn requires complex models that allow companies to project future conditions and what that might mean for their business. But in a time of crisis, when the coronavirus is wrecking havoc on economies and communities across the globe, how can accountants make predictions with any level of certainty? The truth is, they can't. But financial accounting rules require that they have to come up with those estimates anyway. According to Esther Mills, there are steps accountants can take to make forecasting seem less impossible and give investors confidence that those figures are more than just guesses. Mills runs her own consulting firm, Accounting Policy Plus, and she's an alum of some of the biggest investment banks in the U.S., For starters, Mills says accountants have to get out of the mindset that the documents they produce are historical statements.
1: Although we refer to them as historical financial statements, they are full of forward-looking information. So things like pension obligations require companies to estimate a long-term rate of return on their investment portfolio. Employee stock option arrangements require companies to estimate their future stock price volatility. Uh, Many asset impairment tests, which must be performed annually, require companies to perform detailed projections of future cash flows. So even though you might not see the forward-looking information per se in the financial statements, it's really embedded in quite a bit of the numbers. And you can see this, too. Uh, In the section in the financial statement filings called Critical Accounting Estimates, companies are required to list their top four or five areas where estimates are a very integral part of deriving the numbers and where they are highly subjective.
0: Well, and, and one that maybe doesn't always land in that list of the most important critical accounting estimates is Accounts receivable, right? I mean, how much money you expect to collect in the future.
1: Right. So accounts receivable, almost every company has that. And along with that, you have what's called the allowance for doubtful accounts. And what you're estimating is how much of your receivables you expect to collect. Historically, that's a pretty sleepy area of accounting. It's not something that people focus on, primarily because you've got a lot of historical experience, you've got a long track record, and so the past is very predictive of the future. In times like this, when there's a lot of disruption to the economy and the business, those types of assumptions have to be reevaluated and the past might not be a very good indicator of uh, of the future.
0: You know let's talk about what's going on today corporate accountants are facing a mountain of unusual and technically difficult accounting this spring because of the pandemic because of the ensuing economic crisis and estimates are probably at the top of the heap of that difficult accounting
1: well what we're seeing is that a lot of estimates are typically based on historical experience so Companies look to their own track record or the track record, the experience of the industry that they operate in to come up with their estimates of uh, what's going to happen in the future. And obviously, when we are living through unprecedented times, you can't do that as much. So any estimate is particularly challenging. On top of that, because of all the economic disruption, there are a lot of additional tests that need to be done on asset impairment. So things like goodwill or inventory or intangible assets, typically they're tested at most once a year and in good times, the test can be qualitative in nature, it doesn't have to be that detailed. Now, whenever there's a triggering event, and a triggering event is when basically something bad happens in the economy or in the industry that you operate in or in your company, whenever anything bad happens, you are required to do an additional impairment test. And so instead of doing these at various times during the year, you're having to do very complicated tests all at once, all of which involve putting together detailed cash flow projections and forecasts at a time when nobody really knows what's going to happen. So it's sort of like the perfect storm for accountants.
0: Well, given all the uncertainty that you just mentioned, I mean, we don't know how long the shutdowns are going to last. We don't know the possibility of a resurgence or another shutdown. We don't know what the long-term effect will be for the business services and goods that companies are providing so i mean how how do you come up with those cash flow projections how how do you um make those judgments that i mean you still have to come up with an estimate you still have to put something on the financial statement um so how do companies come up with those numbers these days
1: What I advise clients to do is to model multiple scenarios. Do a best case scenario, a worst case scenario, and something in between, or maybe a few scenarios in between. And then do a probability weighting of those scenarios uh, and come up with a probability weighted estimate of all the different scenarios. I think nobody expects companies to have perfect foresight given all of the disruption to the economy and the fact that even chief economists can't agree on where things are going. Mm-hmm. But I think it's best if you can come up with a variety of scenarios and then decide, what assign different probabilities to them.
0: Well, sure. And, and you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, for some of these estimates, you can look back at, at the... At, your past performance, your past, um, you know, past information for your own business, but it's not really reliable right now. So what other information informs these estimates?
1: I think it really looks to what your assumptions regarding the economy and when you think it's going to recover, and then, more importantly, how your business intends to react to the changes that are happening in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And so that's very company-specific. And I've been working with companies on trying to come up with very tailored scenarios. So rather than just taking the typical historical experience, trying to modify that in a way that reflects both their expectations as well as their plans.
0: Well, and how companies react, the steps that they're taking to shore up their own capital, to um, pivot and serve customers in a different way. I mean, those they're going to be unique, obviously, to every company and can have a big impact on the assumptions they're
1: making. Absolutely. But I think that's really what investors are looking for. So I think another great tool that companies can put out there is a sensitivity analysis. So they run the numbers, they come up with an estimate, and then they can say, well, if some of these key assumptions change, this is how our numbers might change. Mm. And I think that in general, companies are not excited about providing information that isn't necessarily required mm. <laughs> under disclosure rules that's very true but it's a it's a good time to be doing that because again there's so much uncertainty that people want to have a good sense of what is underlying these assumptions these estimates and how they might change because as we all know things could change dramatically they just at the beginning of march things were okay then we'd had a mild recession and then a deep recession and now there're signs of optimism so it, it's you know every week things are changing and so i think a sensitivity analysis is really really helpful to investors
0: i mean it almost
1: sounds like
0: that they're just guessing. I mean, they really they really don't know and yet they still have to put these these numbers out to investors.
1: The SEC recently put out a release and they in it, they recognize that forecasting and estimating in this environment is challenging. Yet at the same time, they are encouraging companies to take on that challenge because they believe it will benefit investors and it will facilitate communication among companies and the investing public. A lot of times when you put this information out there, it leads to a two-way dialogue. So companies can understand what investors are thinking and what their expectations are and what their concerns are. Mm. So I think it benefits everyone to provide additional disclosure in this environment.
0: But I wonder, are they looking at past financial crises? Are they looking at recoveries out of past financial crises to understand what that might look like? Um, You know, I mean, obviously, the Great Recession of 2008 is the most recent. But is that a, a valid comparison to use when making judgments about the rest of 2020?
1: Well, the 2008 crisis was more limited in scope to the financial institutions industry. So maybe less relevant to other industries. But I think more broadly, one of the lessons coming out of that was the increased need for disclosure. So as asset values were declining, the SEC was putting out almost every week additional disclosure requirements on how some of these exotic instruments were priced. And as that information came out, the firms on the street would look at each other's valuations and say, wait, They're valuing some of these instruments differently than we are. And should their valuations be adjusted or should ours? And so I think it really led to a dialogue within the industry itself. And so I think one of the lessons learned is that the additional disclosures and transparency really helps everyone, And so I think right now the regulators are being very accommodating to companies because they understand the practical struggles of just getting financial reports out the door when everyone's working from home in different environments. But I think maybe, depending on how this lasts, there will be some additional requirements for more information.
0: Do you think that that will result in just additional guidance from the SEC? Do you see more rulemaking coming down? What what form would that take?
1: I think maybe in the medium to longer term, certainly – the coming out of the 2008 crisis, there was probably a decade of rulemaking afterwards, but not in the immediate aftermath. So I think again, right now, regulators are trying to be very understanding, and I think that's a good thing. And one of the things that they're actually doing is providing relief, whether it's relief for getting your financial reports another 45 days for the 10Qs. Or the Financial Accounting Standards Board just put out uh, some guidance on the new leasing standard, which went into effect last year. Mm -hmm. And in that, they said that we acknowledge the fact that this standard was not designed to accommodate a situation where you have hundreds of leases being modified where you have landlords offering concessions, abatements, deferrals. Uh, And so what they're saying is that instead of adhering to the strict requirements of the standard, which are pretty challenging what they will permit is a variety of ways of accounting for these concessions. So you can account for an abatement in the current period, or you can set up a receivable or a payable, or you can account for it over the life of the lease. That's great news for preparers. But the flip side of that is analysts will need to really pay attention to what companies are doing and what elections they're making. So I think it just increases the need for analysts to really scour the filings to understand what companies are doing, how they're accounting for some of these situations where there is now greater diversity in practice.
0: I mean, how much flexibility do companies have in how they come up with these estimates? Are they very prescriptive? Does it does it vary from estimate to estimate?
1: I mean, the baseline is that you need to come up with a good faith estimate. And it's interesting if we look at a very recent standard uh, directed at financial institutions, the so-called current expected credit loss standard, Mm. which directs institutions on how to calculate their loan loss reserve. And that was a major change from the previous methodology, which looked at the losses that had already been incurred the new methodology is very forward looking it requires banks to look into their crystal ball and estimate how many loans what what amount of loans it expects to incur losses over the future life of the loan so that's a really difficult exercise but instead of putting out a very prescriptive methodology The Accounting Standards Board just put out some basic principles. It requires businesses to consider past experience, to assess existing conditions, and then to look to a, quote-unquote, reasonable and supportable forecast period to come up with their best estimate on credit losses. Reasonable and supportable, not defined, Last year, when banks were finalizing their implementation of this standard, a lot of them were talking about a 12 to 24-month time horizon. Now, where we are, they may be changing that. They may be shortening that because who can look out 12 to 24 months?
0: That was Esther Mills, the head of consulting firm Accounting Policy Plus. You can find up-to-the-minute news on the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. This week's episode was produced by Amanda Icone and David Schultz. That's it for this week's episode. From Washington, I'm Amanda Icone. Thanks for listening. those nine justices in Washington, they can be pretty hard to keep track of. That's where we come in.
1: I'm Jordan Rubin.
0: And I'm Kimberly Robinson.
1: On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court.
0: The filings, the arguments, the opinions, and
1: much, much more. So check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.